We're going to look back again at John 8 today. And we're going to look just at a few verses today, or actually just one, but we're going to read just a few. We'll start in verse 31, John 8, 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son or the son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And Father, I just ask you once again, Lord, that you'll make us all stronger in, your, in our faith and our commitment to trust you, to follow you, and to cherish your word. I ask you'll make that real to us, and I pray that, Father, in Jesus' name. We pointed out last time that the Gospel of John, it has at least eight chapters where he records in his book debates that take place between the Pharisees and Jesus. Anything that's written in the Bible, it's not like it's unlimited space. So it's covering thousands and thousands of years, and there's not a lot of space in there as far as, in other words, everything that's written is important. And John tells us, I've probably said this in the past, but just to remind everybody, in chapter 20, he gives us the purpose of why he wrote the Gospel of John. And it says there in chapter 20, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he's writing this gospel so that anyone that reads this, an unbeliever or whatever, or to encourage believers, or even to speak to people that think they're believers. I mean, he's really kind of covering everything in this gospel and even what we're looking at today. But his purpose is, you can read what he's written. He goes, I've just included the things in here that are going to make it to where you can have faith. And he's saying, I've left a whole lot of things out. So he's saying the things that I have in here, which to me, that's interesting. He's got a lot of these debates. So he's saying sitting in on these debates is something that will enable you to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to experience life. The funny thing is about debates. You know, when we have these presidential debates, which it hasn't been that long ago since we had a lot of presidential debates, if you notice, there's very little substance in those debates about issues, very little substance, because most people and most news organizations that are covering them, they are looking for these sound bites that score points. So they're not so much interested in, in seeing a true debate on the issues as much as did somebody deliver a zinger or whatever, you know, about somebody's hair color or just whatever all else. If somebody humiliates their opponent, that's a big deal. That's what's going to be on the news. All that does is lead to petty bickering, I think, and misinformed voters. And what I would say is with the, the debates, the presidential debates, because I've sat in some debates my kids have been in in school, and I mean, there's actually some substance to it. You can actually learn something. These presidential debates, though, I'd say they are more heat than they are light. The debates between the Pharisees and Jesus, though, have both. They have heat and light, and probably more light, because the Pharisees, they love to crank up the heat. The way they act, they're like Hollywood reporters. They're like the paparazzis. They're like sneaking around looking for Jesus. Is he eating with somebody that he shouldn't be eating with? Is he healing somebody on the Sabbath day in the synagogue? You know, they're always trying to find ways to trip him up, get him in some kind of compromising situation so they can get the dirt on him, and then they're going to hang him. Or they're going to want him to make some kind of judgment. They're constantly bringing these cases before him. Well, tell us what you think. He says the wrong thing. You know, they had to sit around and plot those up for a while, I guess. You know, for instance, we, we've read in this chapter here, John 8 at the beginning, you know, they bring that woman caught in adultery and they're like, now Moses in the law commands us that such should be stoned. What do you say? And they're just setting him up. They're like gossip colonists, really. They're like the Jerusalem Inquirer. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what they are. And that's the heat. But in doing that, they unwittingly play right into the hands of Jesus because he takes what they say and he shines his light of truth on not only what they say, but also what they do. Doesn't that happen to us a lot in here? I mean, if you stay and you hear the word and the word's preached, 
and all of a sudden something is said or a verse is brought out and it nabs you. If you were going through a metal detector, it's like, you know, the word of God just tripped your metal detector and got you, all right? The light of truth will shine and expose us and it exposed them for what they were. But these men, the Pharisees, it showed they were children of darkness, sitting in darkness, loving darkness, all under the guise of these were the holy, pious men of Israel. And most people thought of them that way. That's the way they carried themselves. And these guys are like, we aren't going to touch certain people, the untouchables. You know, it's like when that woman came up behind him when he was at that Pharisee's house eating and she's pouring the perfume on his feet. Her tears are washing his feet and she's wiping them with her hair. Here's what they're thinking. If this man was a prophet, a true prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. If he was like us, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. We wouldn't have anything to do with her. But what did Jesus say about her? He said, no, I will have something to do with her. These kind of people, they need healing, is the way he was saying. And that healing only comes how? As they are exposed to the light. That's the way the healing comes. So he brings his light to them. And if they remain in the light, like the woman that is caught in adultery, they can be healed. That's what the great physician does. Brings things to light. I am the light of the world, he says. He that follows me shall no longer walk in darkness, but shall have not just light, but he says the light of life. There's healing and life in his light. I was told of somebody in our camp, so to speak, had a child that had an incurable disease, and it, they were told it was incurable. But somehow or another, they rigged up a system to where the child was able to be in light. And then eventually they went down to Florida where they, the child was in light all the time and healing this incurable thing. In other words, this light brought healing to this child. I thought, well, that's a good analogy for what we're looking at today. Light does bring healing. I'm saying people that used to be that doctors would send them out to Arizona. Go out to Arizona if you got health problems, especially here in the Midwest, because you've got a lot of heat and a lot of light, a lot of sunshine out there. Nobody, no doctor ever sends a patient that I've ever heard of, why don't you move to Washington State? There's plenty of clouds and rain, and it'll be good for your depression or whatever else ails you. <laughs> I mean, they don't do that because healing comes from light, doesn't it? People act like they're so scared to get light anymore. If I understand this right, aren't there certain vitamins or something necessary for us to be healthy that comes from sunlight? And these people that want to live under a perpetual tent, they look sickly to me. I mean, yeah, you can be somebody, you just, you just get too much sun or whatever, but just, people are like paranoid of light. But light brings healing. It brings things we need. So here's the question. Jesus says, I am the light. I am the only light. And my light is what will bring healing. The question is, how does light come? Because we all have come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, I don't care who you are. If you're coming to him for the right reason, it's because you realize I am not healthy. Isn't that what he said? I came to call the sick. I didn't come to call the healthy or the righteous. Isn't that what he came for? That's what he put down to say, I was sick as could be. I was full of putrid sores. I needed his light to shine to heal my wounds, if you want to put it that way. More than we realize. I think more than we even admit. And we still need that healing light, don't we? It doesn't matter how long we've walked with him. We still need his help. This is not in my notes. I want to backtrack a minute. When I said what I said a few weeks back, we are forever justified, never by what we do, never by our deeds. Our plea will be, I don't care how holy we become. I am not saying we can do whatever we want to and we should not live in holiness and grow in holiness because I would still contend without holiness, no man will be the Lord. But our holiness is never what gets us into heaven. It is forever from day one until the day we meet the Lord. It is his righteousness and only his righteousness that is our ticket into heaven. That's what I was trying to say in so many words. So that takes rid of the antinomian. You can't live however you want to. And the legalist, it's not all these things you're doing to earn righteousness. And the more holy I am, the better chance I have of getting in. No, it's always going to be our plea will be Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That will be our only plea. Yeah, now, listen, if you live in sin, that's going to block 
God's grace in your life, isn't it? I mean, without holiness, you will not see the Lord. But it's never your holiness is not going to be what you present as a reason God should let you in. It's going to be what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And all glory and honor goes to him. And so we'll cast our crowns at his feet, won't we? And any works we do, any good works we do, any growth and holiness will all be because of his grace in our life. Here Jesus has given us in verses 31 to 32, he is given this gracious invitation to all who believe in him. Now he's addressing the Jews, but I think he's addressing all believers from all time. And look what he says. He said to those Jews who believe in him, if you, but he's speaking to us, if you will abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Who are these particular Jews? He's addressing right here. They're the ones that we finished with last week. Look up in verse 30. It says, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. That's what he's going on to say there in verse 31. He's addressing those Jews. They're new believers, aren't they? They wouldn't have been strong. They would have been probably weak. But what brought them to him? It says, because of what he said, many believed on him. One thing I think would have affected me if I was listening to him he says, if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He said that three times to them. That's saying that with an anointing. And I'm telling you, that would have affected those people there. If you do not believe that I am he, he says, you will die in your sins. So here they had seen his signs. These people had seen his signs. They'd heard his voice. And they're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, trembling at his word. Here's what they're doing. They're committing to him. They're saying, we believe you are the prophet, the one that Moses talked about that would come. And we're willing to be your disciples. They're coming to him. That's the people he's addressing. You know, I had to change my notes because I had to think about what I said. I thought, this isn't what I think this is. He's laying down here not a condition. This isn't a condition for being his disciple. This is a proof. Because the word condition makes it seem like, well, if I do these things, if I get in his word, then I can be a disciple. I'll somehow earn a right to be a disciple. No, he gives you that right. I'm saying he's talking to people that are disciples and he's saying here is the proof or the test that anyone can know whether they are a true disciple of him. And he gives it at the very beginning. Look what he says in verse 31. If you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed. And some translations will say you are truly or really or actually my disciples. It's the Greek word for truth, aletheia. So listen, when Jesus came walking to his disciples after he'd fed the multitude and they're out in the boat, told him to go to the other side and the storm came up and he comes walking to his disciples on the water. Peter sees him, Lord, if it's thou, bid me come. Jesus says, come. They go through all that. And then it says in Matthew 14, Jesus brings Peter back in the boat when it says when he gets in the boat immediately, the wind ceased. And when that happened, we read those that were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Truly, indeed, it's the same word we have here. You are my disciples. Indeed, truly, you are my disciple of God. No doubt about it. Jesus says, you want to know if you are truly, indeed, my disciples, the genuine article, he says, then you will remain, abide in my word. That's the proof, if you abide in my word. Now that word abide that's in the King James, I believe it's in my new King James, it literally means to dwell or a dwelling. And we don't use those words, they're kind of archaic words. We don't use abide and dwell in our everyday language. We might if we're quoting a Bible verse. You know, you don't walk up to somebody and say, um, where do you abide? Or where is your dwelling? I mean, we don't talk like that, right? Instead, what would you ask? You'd say, where is your home? Where do you live? Where do you hang out? Or if I was going to be really cool, I'd say, where's your crib? But I'm not that cool. <laughs> That's probably a dated word anyway, this is how much I'm on top of stuff. Well, what Jesus is saying here is, where do you make your home? He's saying, if you make your home in my word, if you do that, make your home in my word, he said, then you are truly my disciples. When we make our home in his word, we're making our home in him, aren't we? That's John 15. 
Matthew Henry said this, he says, abide means to dwell in Christ's word as a man does at home, which is his center, his rest, and his refuge. Abiding in his word, making Jesus' word our home means two things. And the first thing is, it means I'm going to stick with it. I am going to live under this roof. I'm not going to run away from home. So we're saying I'm going to offer faithful, loyal obedience to Jesus' clear teaching. I'm going to remain loyal to him. That's the first thing it means. Not going to be a runaway. And the second thing is, is I am going to give time to listening to the word. And I'll just say it. One of the primary ways God has given for his word to be heard is through the preaching at a church. It really is. And anymore, I saw it at the seminary. I just Anymore, it's like, well, we can take it or leave it. We can be there or not be there. No big deal because you're just saying the same things we've heard a hundred times. Well, okay. Well, God's ordained that preaching at a church is one of your primary ways or one of the ways that you hear his word. But it also, I'm not limiting it to that, obviously. Your family devotion should be another way. Your private time, obviously, when you read the Bible on your own, which I would encourage everyone to do, and I would encourage everyone to have some kind of a reading plan where you're reading the entire Bible, not just the New Testament, not just certain places you like, because that's what helps you to rightly divide the word of truth. That's what helps you to recognize error when it comes, because you got a good overall familiarity with the Bible. And he also, he can take the word that you've read at some time or heard at some time, he can also bring it up while you're driving, taking a shower, doing whatever, cooking dinner, a million ways, can he? But that's what it means. That's your abide. In short, what we're saying is the word Jesus is saying here, my disciples, the word will now become the priority of your life, the major part. Not a part that's been neglected, but it'll be a major part of your home, of your week, and of your life. So what's he saying? You become a new believer, he's telling you, hey, wait a minute, you've got to have a new residence. And that's in my word. You're living under it, under the authority of it. You're listening, you're learning, you're being changed because that wasn't my residence before I became a Christian. I wanted nothing to do with it. I had my residence in the word of the world. That's where I lived, that's where I dwelt, that's what I listened to, that's what affected me. And he's saying, that's all got to change. And so this is really a gracious invitation, isn't it, from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, come, you think about what he's saying to us. Come live with me. God Almighty's inviting us. Isn't that what he's saying? If you abide, make your home in my word. And we do that, like I said, we're living with him. Because he's saying, I am the word. Then you'll know me when you do that. You'll fellowship with me. You'll hear my voice. It's in my word. And then he says, and then you for real, you for real will be my disciples because we know that there's a lot of unreal disciples <laughs> floating around, aren't there? The implication in this, you will be my disciples truly, or the implication is that there are real disciples, true disciples, disciples indeed, and temporary disciples, aren't there? That's who he's talking to these people, those that stay for a while, but then they're gone. We've all seen that happen. And what makes the difference? The difference is, it's the difference between someone that lives and stays at home and runaways. We've had runaways, haven't we? We've had them. And some, praise God, just because a person's run away doesn't mean they'll never make it back. But we've had runaways here. Some have make it, made it back. Some haven't at all. Some have gone off the deep end and stayed off the deep end. And that's kind of the concern you should have is you go off that deep end. You don't know. There's no promise you'll get back. It's all God's grace then, isn't it? It's God's grace, period. But you turn your back on him like that, there's, there's no promise for that. I just listened to a testimony from someone that is part of our church on YouTube. And I'm not going to give the whole testimony, but this struck me in light of what I was going to teach today. The testimony was they went off to college, a Christian college, got away from our church. And with all that happened, there's a lot of things that went on. But at one point, the basic mindset was there was a revelation about the love of God, which was good. I mean, I like the testimony, which was good. But get off to school and it's like, OK, that kind of thing. I know the word because they've been sitting here, which I'm telling you, that's that's <laughs> that can be the case, but it cannot be the case. I know the word. I know God loves me. 
and I'm just going to live what I know. So the person couldn't find a church to go to, and no church, no longer reading the Word, no longer living in the Word. And what happened, according to the testimony, if I got this wrong, somebody can correct, the drift began. The drift began. And the drift ended in literal bondage and darkness, not light. And the testimony was, which I thought was good, God in his grace reached down in that darkness and brought the person back, which I thought was, was a really good testimony. But the drift, it always begins slowly. No one apostatizes overnight. That person, all of us, we've all heard the same warnings. We all yawn when we hear it because we hear it so many times. Oh, it's this message again about you got to abide in my word. Okay, tend to yawn. We think it'll never be us. But Jesus says this, my disciples, my true disciples, they will remain in my word. And he's saying they will be my truly disciples. The phony disciples won't. They may last for a while, but eventually they'll leave. If you would turn to Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 2. God in his grace made man. There was fellowship that took place in the Garden of Eden, right? And then at some point... Man and woman, they turn their back on God. And they say, we're no longer listening to you and we're going our own way. Here's the point I want to make is though man, though we in Adam quit speaking to God, we're hiding, we're trying to get away from him. Guess what? God never quit speaking to us, did he? He never quit speaking to man. And he's spoken to man all through the Bible and through all time. You're in two, but look at the beginning of chapter one and verses one and two. It says here, and that's what it's telling us here in verse one of chapter one of Hebrews. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. And look what he says, though, in verse two, has in these last days spoken to us how? By his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the world. So he's saying all through time since the garden, God has spoken to man. He's never given up on man. He's spoken through through the prophets in visions and dreams. The prophets would act out, sometimes act out their prophecies. But he's saying now in these last days, no longer through intermediaries. He says, I've come down here in the flesh and I've spoken through my son. Think about it. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, we talked about this back when we taught on Mark. The veil was taken off and his glory was fully revealed. To look at him, they said his face shone like the sun in the noonday and his clothes became glistening white, brighter than any fuller could make him, whiter than any fuller could make him. And during that time, when that happens, these men are seeing that a cloud comes down and a voice speaks out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. And of all the things he could have said, what did the Father, God Almighty, say at that time? This is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him. He's bringing a message. And God Almighty descends down in a cloud like that in that moment. That's a word, an invitation, isn't it? It's an invitation and a warning. Not just to them. It's recorded there. It's to us too, isn't it? God has spoken to us. He's come down here. We didn't deserve it. We turned our backs on him back in the garden. He's continued to speak, to speak. That's his grace, to speak to us. Chapter 1, he says he's spoken to us through prophets in times past. And now he's spoken through his son. He says he is so much greater than the angels. You don't realize who it is that has come down to speak to you. And that takes us into chapter 2. Look what it says in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 1. Because of all that, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, he says in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those that heard him. So that expression that it says there in verse 1 of chapter 2, give the more earnest heed, that means to pay close attention to someone. That means to give somebody or something your undivided attention. 
And that's what he's saying there. The NIV says, for this reason, I like the translation of the NIV on that verse, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why is he saying that? Well, we've already talked about the first reason. It's because who is this person, this person that has come down and spoken to us? God's son. And neglecting that, neglecting his words and what he said and treating them lightly, that he's saying if the angels speaking and people treated it lightly and did whatever they wanted to, they got a just recompense of reward. They were just angels. He's saying, how much more? We need to understand how much more are we going to be responsible when God's son himself has come down and spoken to us? How much more? And the second reason is there are a lot of voices that are trying to get our attention and they will be and they are being successful with the multitudes. This to me is ironic. The same expression where it says give the more earnest heed, the same expression is used in 1 Timothy 4.1. And it says this, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed. That's the word. Same word used in chapter 2 of Hebrews. Giving heed to seducing spirits, to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. He's saying here, the Spirit, Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 4.1, when it says the Spirit speaketh expressly, that word expressly means expressly, explicitly, clearly. He's clearly said this is what is going to happen. That some, they should be paying close attention to God's Word because he's saying they're departing from the faith, but he's saying instead of the attention they should be given God's Word, they are given that same special attention to these teachings of deceiving spirits coming through men. Christian, quote-unquote, preaching men. And that's what he's saying, giving your attention to something else. And that takes you, that's where that drift takes place. And it gets you off the path onto this other way. What we're given attention to. So if you would, turn over to 2 Peter 1. It's not far from Hebrews. Verses 16 to 19. And Peter writes, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking back to the Mount of Transfiguration that I just talked about. Verse 17, it says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and Peter says we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain but look what he says in verse 19 and so we have the prophetic word confirmed look what he says which you do well and here's the same word again to heed you do well he says to give careful attention to so we've been talking about light in John 8, that you do well to give heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. He's saying you need to understand that light that has come, that word that has been confirmed. And we heard it from the Father. He's telling us you need to pay special attention. Hear him. And he's saying, you need to see that is such a gift. That is the light that's been given to shine in darkness. So we don't have to stumble in darkness. And he's saying, you do well to heed that. That's what's going to get you into heaven. Well, we're back over there in, in Hebrews 2. I know we turned away from that. But when it talks there about that drifting, give heed, give special attention to what we've heard lest what we've heard drifts away. It's a nautical term. It's talking about a ship that is moored outside of a harbor. And the waves cause it to slowly just drift away and then carry it away from its intended safe harbor, its intended safe place. And that's the picture that has happened to many a person. They've heard the Word of God, been affected by it, planned on doing something about it, but they just never got around to making that commitment and they just drifted on by that safe harbor. And all of a sudden, it's out of sight and it's too late. I'm saying that's terrible, isn't it? That's the warning. We don't want to have that happen to us because I've witnessed to people in different ways to where I could tell they had a clear view of the gospel 
and they saw the safety. They're even like in their mind, they know that's what I need to do. And the devil comes, and like it says, they then harden their heart. And what happens when a heart gets hardened? That word, he just takes it from them like it was never there. And here, what they had in view, what they probably intended on doing something about at one time, they just drifted right on past it, maybe never to see it again. And what's the reason? He tells us that also. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Just too occupied with other things is what happens a lot of times. We can do that. We know something's right. We know we ought to do something about it. But we just tell ourselves, I'm just do it another day. I'm too busy right now. I've got other things to do, see, and to be involved in. And that's kind of what it's saying here. This is another familiar scripture, but if you don't mind, if you would turn to Luke 10. Luke 10. It says, Now it happened as they went that he entered Jesus a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve all by myself alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. But he's saying, but one thing is needed or one thing is necessary. Just one thing. And he says, Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. So he makes the promise. We're back to what we're saying in John. Who does he make that promise of? Who is a real disciple? He's saying it's the person that does what? Like we talked about at the beginning. They make their home, their abode, where they live is in his word. And don't we see that's what Mary is doing here? She's chosen to do that. She is sitting, living under the word, literally at his feet, hanging on to every word. And I'm sure she took care of business when business needed to be taken care of. But her priority in her life was this word of God, wasn't it? This word of the Lord Jesus Christ. She recognized this is an opportunity I may never have again. I'm not going to waste it doing dishes right now. The dishes can wait till tomorrow. Isn't that what the Lord's telling us through all that? You know, I was planning on getting much further along through John 8. I got stuck right here. So... For whatever that's worth, you're like, well, you just stuck, period, but okay. But, you know, you think about it, all you can do is, and you stand up here and preach is just say it, and if people aren't going to take you seriously, or you're just, you know, droning on, and we've heard this droning many years, I mean, that's fine. <laughs> what could I say? But I'm saying it's still, Mary looked at Jesus' word, we just read it, that was her pearl of great price, wasn't it? Isn't that what we're reading here in John 8? He says, if you truly want to be my disciple, then you remain, make my word your home. Martin Luther had something interesting to say. If you go back to John 8, 31, he had something interesting to say about Jesus' words here in John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. I thought this was good. Now, Martin Luther, you think I'm blunt. That guy was blunt. And he said this. He says, I hear Jesus saying in speaking this verse, 8, 31, he says, the one group believes in me. They praise and hear the gospel and say, this is the real truth. And Martin Luther says, I regard them as great and fine Christians. He says, it's all a matter of continuing. But he says, then there are others who hear it. But when the battle grows hot, they declare, upon my soul, should I forsake this or that for the sake of the gospel? In other words, it's like, is this really worth it? This gospel? He says, there are few who remain true to the gospel in the face of cross and persecution. He says, where can one find those who are constant? And he says this, oh God, how few of you will pass the test. I was pretty sobering when I read that. He says, there are few who remain true to the gospel in the face of cross and persecution. Where can one find those who are constant? Oh God, how few of you will pass the test. So here, what is Jesus telling us? And what is Martin Luther telling us? And what does the Bible tell us from cover to cover? And that is, it's easy to be at home in the Word, to live in the Word, when it appears that you are part of the, quote-unquote, moral majority. 
uh, the younger people probably don't know about the moral majority. That was a big movement back in the 80s. And back then, it was like in vogue to be a conservative evangelical Christian back then. So there was this big push. Jerry Falwell over at Liberty University was heading it up. And we're going to bring God back in our school system, back to our country, bring God back to the United States of America. And in the process, they they were trying to get Pat Robertson elected president. I mean, that was how all that was going to work. And here's the thing, though. At that point, when you had conservative, evangelical, biblical beliefs, you, you felt like you were part of a group. And you didn't feel like you're out there somewhere in the fringe. But now, here's the question that we have to see that's happening currently. What do you do when the moral majority has drifted over to the side of the world and you're left standing in the moral minority? The peer pressure now. I read certain things that go on. I don't want to get into all of this now. But I'm telling you, all this politically correct stuff is influencing the church in its most conservative base. And it's rocking, and it's cracking, and it's compromising. I'm seeing that happen not only outside of our church, but within our church. There's this peer pressure. Who wants to be not part of the big group? That test is coming, it's been coming, and it's going to get stronger. Then the question is, will you make your home in my word? Are your convictions, and we've been taught this before, But it really is coming down. We're going to find out, I think, with all of us, to one degree or another. Are your convictions based on the group or are your convictions word-based? Are they based because we're in the word? Because look here at verse 30 again in chapter 8. It says, as he spoke these words, how many did it say believed in him? It says many believed in him. There is a big crowd response coming in here. And whenever there's a a big crowd or large crowd response, there's always those ones that are just kind of caught up in the moment. Or if your family, your husband, your wife, your parents, your friends, if they act because they say this is what we believe or this is just what we do, they don't even know, they couldn't point to a verse, but this is just what we do, how we act, whatever. People just tend to go along with that and you might do things you wouldn't do if you were just on your own. Jesus here, when he's speaking to these people, he says, these disciples, he says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You know, he knows that there is some of them here that they're believing their faith is not real. So that's why he gives this test. This is how you can know. This is how you can know if you're truly saved, a true disciple, a Christian And if you don't, you can do something about it. But he's saying, you can know this because you will remain in my word. Not just temporarily, not just as long as the crowd does it, but it will be a settled commitment. And that's what he's saying here. So listen, the three Hebrew boys, talk about them a lot, but they'll probably get talked about a lot here in the future. Who knows? They were no longer in the moral majority of Jerusalem. And it was never really a moral majority to begin with. It's kind of like Christians in the U.S., True Christians have never been in the majority. And Israel was a nothing as far as the world was concerned back in its day. It was a backwashed country. There's nothing to it. We think it's a big deal because of the Bible and what we believe and all that. Back then, these big powers that took over, Israel was not the moral majority in any sense. But you think about it, the three Hebrew boys, they've been taken out of that group that they were with in Jerusalem and stripped of all of that, their family, their parents, all the things that tend to make people do the things they do, believe what they believe, they're taken and they were put in a test because they were translated into a hostile environment when they were taken to Babylon. And now here's the pressure. You say you are committed to this word, this is what you believe, and it was put to the test, wasn't it? Because it's like, you all, you either compromise what you believe about the word, and it'd been real easy for them not to, because who's going to tell on them? Who are they going to get in trouble with? Mom and dad aren't anywhere to be seen. They're on their own. It's survival. But yet they didn't, did they? Either you bend your knee or it's the fire. And they passed that test. And only a true commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word The person of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to stand that test. And if you could just bear with me here, we're in John 8. I'm going to show you how this works. Turn back to John 6. So we see here in John 6, the first couple verses, it says this. It says, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And it says, then a great multitude, a great multitude. Here we are again, the moral majority followed him. Why? 
It says, because they saw the signs which he had performed on those who were diseased. Great multitude followed him because of those healing signs. They're caught up in the miracle. They're caught up in the excitement. And then Jesus goes on and miraculously feeds them bread, which was in short supply. That's what we have going on in verses 3 to 14, which we're not going to read. Because of that, many of them, they're excited. They believe in him. They see there's something special about him, and they want to follow him. So look what it says in verses 14 and 15. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did said, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 15, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. He gets away from them. They're after him now. They see there's something about him. We believe we want you. And so they follow him. And in the morning, <laughs> they see the ship's not there. Well, where is he? So they go looking for him until they finally find him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And look what it says in verse 26. They say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs that pointed to who I am. He says, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on them. And he goes on and tells them, I am the bread of life. The true bread, it'll satisfy every need that you have, like the manna that's come down from heaven. So look what he says there in verse 41. And he says, the Jews complained about him because they, he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus therefore answered and said to them, don't murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, he says, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever, and the bread which I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And they cannot handle that. It's a hard saying, and they don't have the heart to either understand it or want to understand it. They just have contempt for it, and they murmur and complain, and they're offended. Look at what it says beginning in verse 60. It says, therefore, many of his whom? Disciples, just like we have over in John 8, those that believe. When they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe in him and who would betray him, even though they claimed to be believers, claimed to be disciples. And he said, therefore I have said unto you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And that was the last straw. Look what it says. And from that time, many of his, what? Disciples went back and walked with him no more. They couldn't abide his words. When it was a hard saying, something they didn't understand, when they were offended, they were his disciples. They believed in him. Oh, they liked the bread. They liked the miracles. But the word was the deciding factor. It says, and then Jesus, he said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and we know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And that was a revelation that was given there. And that's why they're staying. That's why they can see it. That's why they want that word and that truth. But look at it. My point in going through all that is the multitudes were following him, weren't they? The multitudes, it seemed like they believed. And it's everyone's in this big group. And the 12 were probably caught up in the excitement, too. And look what he could do. We want to make him king. We love this man. And guess what? By the time we get down here to the end of this chapter, it's just like we're seeing today. The moral majority is gone. It's faded. And what caused it to fade? The word, didn't it? His word is too hard. We don't like what he's saying. We're offended by it. You're telling us there's nothing in us that would, we can draw ourselves to you that we're totally dependent on you? And your grace in Jesus, he said that three times through John 6. And that when he said it the third time, they're like, they turned away from him. We're walking no more with you. Just the 12. And he looks at them like he looks at us. And he says, will you also go away? Will you also, do you want to go away? And Peter's response, I've always liked this. He looked at him, Lord, I mean, we have nowhere else to go. You You, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe. I mean, they truly did believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus would say, you, Peter, qualify to be truly my disciple. You are committed to live in my word, even what you don't understand yet, and even what is hard. It had to be hard for them. Peter's saying, we've had our hearts opened. We've had our eyes opened. We can see the truth, the beauty the grace, the power. He's saying, not only in your words, I can see that, but he's saying, I also have come to believe in your person, you, who you are. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Where else are we going to go? Where else is there to go? And Peter, was I think he was a pretty raunchy sailor myself, fisherman. I think he'd had his fill of that. I think he knew where that went. He'd been in the miry clay taken up out of there by the Lord Jesus Christ and washed through his word. Why do I want to go back to that? I may not understand everything you're saying, but why do I want to go back to that? That's what a true disciple will say. And so he's saying what we all need to realize, and that is the only way we're going to know the Lord Jesus Christ is how and the Father is through his word. You have the words of everlasting life. That's where it begins and ends. And that's what Paul tells it. It's the light of the gospel, the good news, the word that has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation that takes place. In Acts 16, Lydia and the women, they go down to the river and it says Paul meets them there. That's where they would meet to pray. He found that out. And so they all sit down and they're listening to Paul. Paul's sitting there sitting and they're listening to the words he spoke. And what would have been the words he would have spoken? He says, I know nothing but Christ and him crucified. He would have been taking the Old Testament scriptures and opening them up and explaining to them how they pointed and Jesus Christ fulfilled them. And it says, as he spoke that God opened Lydia's heart, it says he opened her heart. And here's our word again. He opened her heart to heed, to pay special attention to the things spoken by Paul. God did that for her, gave her the ability to get focused in on what Paul's saying. And through that, he opens her heart and she is seeing in the spirit. She's getting a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ through the word. That's how she came to know him. And that is how we come to know God. The primary way is through the word. We also can know him through our trials and obedience to the word. Back to the three Hebrew boys, because they were obeying his word, living under his word that brought them into a trial. It wasn't just a head knowledge type thing or whatever. They literally experienced the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with them in that fire. So they go hand in hand. But here's the only way we can even know that our experiences are not deceptions. And that is by knowing the word. Because experiences just in and by themselves, you could be totally deceived. People, that happens all the time. They think they've had some experience and God's spoken to them or some supernatural thing. So we have to know the word and be committed to it. Jesus warned of false Christ, false prophets, seducing spirits. We've already talked about that in 1 Peter 4. 
So the only safeguard we have is by rightly dividing the word of truth. He's saying, continue, make your home in my word. You'll be my disciples. My word, he's saying, you will know me. That is how we will experience and know God Almighty. This verse, 1 Samuel 3.21, listen to what it says. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. It says the Lord revealed himself to Samuel. And how did he do that? This is what it says. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. It was through his word that Samuel came to know who the Lord was, who he was. No other way of knowing it. So the question to close that God is asking us today is, are you really, truly my disciple? Do you make your home in my word? So you got a lovely home. You picture this lovely home sitting in the woods, a nice setting. You've gone on a trip, and as you drive up to that home, coming back home, you see lights on inside. It's got a glow about it, and you know a warm, loving family awaits you when you get in there. There's going to be a warm shower, a warm bed, plenty to eat and drink. It's the place you live, and you're glad to be there. And there's security, and there in your home are all of your earthly needs met. You can picture that. And here what I'm saying is, today Jesus, through this invitation, he's inviting us to come to him and see that his word will give us all of that and more, won't it? Isn't that what it promises? Infinitely more. He's saying, make your home in my word. There's beauty in my word. Truth, the light's on. Bread and water that will satisfy you, he says, like no earthly bread will. And the grace and power and peace that you experience in your own home, he says, that will be found in my word because it's found in me, not in the world, right? And so he's saying, come, that's the invitation, come, live in my word and truly be my disciples. Amen? If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth to bring us your truth, your light, that we can now, Lord, his light can shine in our hearts. We can have a true knowledge of you, Lord, and experience you and know you and taste and see that the Lord is good. I ask you, Father, you'll give us all a hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the righteousness that we find in your word, Lord, that we'll live in it, abide in it, cause it to be on our minds and our hearts that we'll speak it and cherish it, and that we'll give the words of your Son the honor and the glory that they're due in our lives. And I thank you that you'll do that for us here in Jesus' name. Amen.